Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. everybody and welcome to the wizard and the bruiser i'm holden mcneely and i might be a wizard and i'm jake young and heretofore known as the bruiser (laughs) you're so big and strong and mean jake i will shove people for looking at my girlfriend (laughs) uh which i have um Guys, All I, right, I, you don't need to let everybody know okay, that you have a well, girlfriend. You know what? All right, fine. I also have a girlfriend, Jake. Is that what we need to tell the people? Marcus right has girl- guys. It gets better. I have a girlfriend. <laughs> it gets as well. It gets if better. you think to yourself, "There's no way I'm ever going to get a girlfriend." I'm 34. I live in an alleyway. I'm missing most of my limbs. <laughs> I didn't kiss a girl until I was 19 years old, and I don't think a girl saw my penis until I was more like 20. Uh, I, a girl still hasn't seen mine, but that's because it's real fast. <laughs> <laughs> that is, I heard, yeah. Zippy. The jumpy boy, as it's called in certain street slangs. Uh, before we uh, get to part two of our landmark uh, multi-part Alan Moore retrospective, I just want to say thank you so much to the fans right now. Uh, we've been in the top 200 on iTunes comedy charts. Uh, Woo! It's, in, it's incredible. Uh, the fan group on Facebook has been so supportive and amazing. I'm loving the Facebook fan group we're talking right now about pokemon um you know and speaking of which i think our own episode kind of got me to go out to gamestop on friday and pick up my copy of pokemon sun mm-hmm. and every time i hear a fan say hey your episode got me watching the simpsons again your episode got me to pick up overwatch it's like the greatest feeling in the world so thank you so much for all the kind words uh however whatever joy you get listening to our just horrifically moist voices uh <laughs> whatever like whatever love you Send back is just filling our hearts with with a splendiferous joy. It's making me fucking do a jig down the street and fucking <laughs> kiss every priest I see. So, Jake, <laughs> today we're continuing part two of our first two-parter about Alan Moore. Uh, yeah, he was the man so prolific. We like we were we were sputtering facts, and it still could not even scratch the surface. My head is spinning from the extra research that I just did earlier today. I mean, every single work that that man made and I've read a lot of it is just so full of content of just stuff of just little details that it's just like hurts the mind. The mind melts, Marcus. My mind. I've been aware of the mind melt. 
Alan <laughs> I've been listening to interviews and quotes, and like my, I've been immersed in Alan Moore world so much. I feel like I'm 14 again. Alan Moore, the 63 year old man, is like the cool 14 year old that discovered like punk rock, anarchy, the occult, and uh, and and like slasher films, but just like continuing to evolve into the perfect being. Just this dour, just witty guy that is just like exploded and expanded upon ideas his entire life. And it's- we'll talk about what he's been up to a little bit now, but it's even weird to acknowledge that he's still a man in the present that makes things because he <laughs> feels like this timeless mage that mm-hmm. like doesn't exist in my dimension. Uh, <laughs> you have to listen to more <laughs> British talk shows. He is alive, he gets drunk, and has a cheeky sense of humor. Okay, <laughs> there you he's go. Cheeky. So last week we left off at The Watchmen, and we really wanted to spend a lot more time with it, so I'm really happy we did uh, cut ourselves off then. Um, mm-hmm. Let's just dig right in. Um, the work begun on it in 1986. Um, it's a Cold War mystery imagining that the world would be what the world would be like if a costume heroes had existed since the 1940s. Um, they got illustrator Dave Gibbons who co-created and illustrated um, one of my favorite uh, Alan Moore one-offs which was Mogo Doesn't Socialize <laughs> which we talked about the Green Lantern short story we talked about uh, last week and um, the BBC described it as the moment comic books grew up. Uh, yes, although Alan Moore will often point out that despite all the headlines, it was always, bam, kablow, comic books grow up. <laughs> uh, I mean, all right, so if you are if you haven't read this, I think we can unequivocally say, read it. Like, yeah. please. It is. It still holds up to this day. And, and, and if you're not a comic book person even, yeah. I would say, hey, check it out. Just pick this one up. This is the one I gave to my brother who does not read comic books. Um, this is the one I I, I, I would I, I think I tried to get my dad to read. I mean, it's just the one, you know, to try to say, hey, the the, the comics can can sort of have this deeper uh, thing happening in them, you know, the, the sophistication that that um, and, and they they're they are an argument. There's an argument to be made for them as great works of literature. Um, a, one of the I think one of the hallmarks besides the plot and characters, which are incredibly memorable, is uh, the way that this is a uniquely comic book based story yes that uh the way that the panels are laid out the way that the word bubbles are placed the color choices everything about this book can only exist as a comic book everything is enhanced and complemented by its very form factor yes the illustrator uh gibbons even talks about that as it progressed watchman became this is a quote from him as it progressed watchman became much more about the telling than the tale itself the main thrust of the story essentially hinges on what is called a macguffin a gimmick so really the plot itself is of no great consequence it just really isn't the most interesting thing about watchman as we actually came to tell the tale that's where the real creativity came in and I, I I absolutely agree with that and I have to say don't don't it's not the movie is fine mm-hmm. but it's not the reason for the season like it's not you're not gonna get what what we're talking about right now mm-hmm. from that movie you have to read the comic book the uh, the thing about the thing about the movie which I, I kind of got the most out of was uh, I remember watching it in the midnight premiere and like being blown away because so many scenes are like actual panels 
from Watchmen, which is super cool. I did appreciate that. And, and on the screen, and that was like thrilling and fascinating and nostalgic and wonderful. And then I watched it a second time and <laughs> fell asleep because <laughs> it was j- like all the good parts were just the bits from the comic books. Right. right. Um, they Absolutely. made changes to the plot. Like they did all sorts of things. They uh, had that corny fuck scene. Mm. Remember the corny fuck scene, Jack? Hallelujah. <laughs> oh, God, I forgot that. Hallelujah. How could you forget? I just blocked it out, Marcus. It was such a just like, man. Night Owl's penis. So I guess we'll talk a little bit about this gimmicky plot, though, for a second, because I think it is quite fascinating and an interesting take. As usual, Alan Moore is taking a spin on classic, uh, the classic superhero form, examining it in a certain kind of way, trying to sort of bust it open and shed a new light on the, the superhero uh, legacy while also picking apart history and sort of delving into the details within history to kind of give us deeper truths. So, um, a quote from him on uh, how he kind of came up with this. He said, I suppose I was just thinking that'd be a good way to start a comic book. Have a famous superhero found dead. As the mystery unraveled, we would be led deeper and deeper into the real heart of this superhero's world and show a reality that was very different to the generic public image of the superhero. Again, this is another thing that uh, that you always, for context, uh, besides Dark Knight Returns, this true deconstruction of the superhero, of showing these larger-than-life figures as flawed, broken people, uh, sometimes triumphant, sometimes defeated, uh, was incredibly refreshing it was it was shocking almost and it almost would have been cooler what he originally wanted to do was take a real superhero team that existed mm-hmm. and then turn them and twist them and fuck them all up dc had just acquired a line of characters from the charlton comics he wanted to use them for this like instead of the comedian which of course in the watchmen they're all made up superheroes that feel like superheroes you've been reading for for years which they did such a good job of instilling that and right. to the point where at, at points i was like are are these real superheroes that I just don't like know about um, back when I was reading it. But uh, originally he, he made a proposal to take the comic uh, uh, superheroes that they had just the, the properties that they had just acquired and make the story about them. But DC was like, yeah, we just paid a lot of money for all these superhero properties. We're not just going to let you turn them into alcoholics. And yeah, no, no, gonna- it'll be brilliant. You have to imagine <laughs> Captain Adam just dick swinging in the wind <laughs> while Blue Beetle just jerks off. In a corner. And they're all assholes. <laughs> they're all total assholes. Um, yeah. <laughs> Johnny Bullet dead in a gutter. <laughs> I, I forgot the, whoever the comedian was supposed to be. It was like, but uh, yeah, some of the characters are still active in the DC universe. Interesting. But, yeah, like Night Owl is definitely supposed to be Blue Beetle with uh-huh. his gadgets and spaceship. Uh, Doctor Manhattan's definitely supposed to be Captain Atom. Uh, hmm. Rorschach is supposed to be the Question with ah. his like uh, blanked out face and fedora. Yeah, yeah. questions the shit. I love the. What's question. the deal with the Question? The Question is uh, a detective uh, who has a face mask that it makes his face completely and totally blank, or her face ah. completely and totally blank. Yeah, interesting. Because there was a new Question a few years back, Rene Montoya. Mm. There was a Question. Yeah. Did they just not just grab the genitals and see what there was? <laughs> That's my solution. That was not what the question was. It's like, hey, hey, stop, stop it, stop it. That's what the question always says when old Holdy Bear's around. 
Um, bit of a grabsies, but uh, only with consent. So to our viewers at home. <laughs> uh, he was also inspired by Mad Magazine, of all things. Mm-hmm. The classic uh, Mad Magazine spoof, uh, Super Duper Man, which appeared in issue number four of Mad Magazine, actually would be the uh, sort of set the mark for all Mad Magazine parodies moving forward. Um, and uh, just as an example, it kind of it, it twisted Superman in the sense like Clark Kent, Clark Bent uh, was uh-huh. using his X-ray vision not to help like solve crimes, but to peer into a woman's bathroom, let's mm-hmm. say. So Moore wanted to kind of do that sort of thing with superheroes, but in a, a total 180 degree dramatic situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I I just keep thinking about all the clever little bits that um, that really make you stand back and go like, this was a deliberate effort by very creative people. Like, uh, the fact that Dr. Manhattan, this godlike figure who can, like, rearrange the molecules of the universe to his will, uh, Throughout the book, as you travel through time, uh, you know, because there's lots of flashbacks, you can see, like, how he gets nakeder and nakeder the less he gives a shit about humanity. Right, right. So, like, by the time he's in the Vietnam War, he's in a Speedo, but, like, you know he doesn't care. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, As it flashes back and forth, Rorschach, his word balloons get, like, more decrepit and, like, and, and bent and twisted the more, like... Horrible street crime he's exposed to. Mm-hmm. Where yeah. in flashbacks he's like, "Come on, fellas, we need to form a new superhero team." Yeah, and then he finds a little girl's bones in a stove. <laughs> <laughs> it was all about the little minute visual details for both uh, for both Gibbons and Alan Moore. And he uh, Moore even cited William Burroughs as a huge uh, influence, actually, uh, because he had a comic book called The Unspeakable Mister Hart. It appeared in the British underground magazine Cyclops, and apparently it just was filled with repeated symbols that would Mm -hmm. become laden with meaning, um, which led to the things like the smiley face with the blood on it and things like that. And you'll see smiley faces all throughout. And the smiley face with the blood became a symbol for almost the whole thing in itself. Smiley faces, watches, the the pirate comic that is kind of just thrown into the the curse of the Black Freighter. Tales of the Black Freighter. Tales of the Black Freighter. Comic within the comic, which would come to symbolize many of the different struggles that the characters were going through. Um, it's, it's operatic. These are motifs. These are recurring themes. Like this is the kind of shit that, like, when you were reading uh, and ma- writing book reports in high school, you were like, "I don't care." <laughs> but it's there in a comic book, and this was the work of a lot of collaboration. Yes. This is a, this was an English team. Uh, Alan Moore, during when the uh, when they were kind of under the gun, would physically put typewritten pages into a taxi cab and send it 50 miles south to get to Dave Gibbons. Dave Gibbons' family, he enlisted his wife and children to help draw up 9 by 9 panel grids because they were so under the wire to get this thing out. They were so like behind the time and I mean talk about detail. Apparently these scripts were just so filled (laughs) to the brim with detail. Like there was just, you know, these are full written, typed out pages like massive amounts of notes and he was giving them at at, at one point when they were getting so behind in schedule, yes it was only a few pages at a time and then Gibbons would literally call him up and say, feed 
me. <laughs> Feed me more. And it was just like this intense fucking thing, you know? My, my fa- one of my favorite uh, quotes from Dave Givens about the creation of The Watchmen was that he would get these, like, massive chunks of story and, like, all these meticulously arranged panels where, you know, individual pieces of clothing and items on a desk would be described. And it would fill up, like, one panel would fill up an entire page. And Alan would just write as the last line, or do whatever works best. <laughs> I was always told this from my buddy Jason Kephart, and I don't know if it's actually true, but it was he, he said something to me about, like, in V for Vendetta, he was communicating with the illustrator, and he was, like, talking about how V had his back to the frame, but he was, like, looking, uh, he had a look of, like, menace on his face or something like that, <laughs> like, describing the look on his face, even though he's not, <laughs> you couldn't see his actual face. And then, anyways, it was just one of those weird, like, apparently he just gave crazy amounts of notes and had a crazy amount of detail to communicate. And um, even Gibbons himself would include bits of symbolism and and hide things in the imagery that Alan Moore himself did not discover until a fifth or or sixth reading of of the comic book. So they were they were even just throwing stuff in there that the other one wasn't even aware of. Um there was that's that's just how thick this thing was and they always wrote uh the whole thing as as a a piece to be reread many times to gain a deeper meaning and I know I've I've gone through it I think three times probably and I know I've gained um uh uh, more out of each subsequent reading of it. Uh, the look of the book is also incredibly unique. Uh, it's it's kind of common knowledge that uh, in classic uh, four-color comics printing, heroes will have uh, bright primary colors. Superman is just red, blue, yellow. But the palette of Watchmen is all oranges and purples and greens, secondary colors. Yes. It looks like subdued. It looks kind of... it's it's It feels like an otherworldly vision of what a comic book universe should be. God bless you if we actually got you to pick up this book for the first time. I, I, I wish I was you. You're going to be, like, so amazed. But fuck, man, that twist. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. God, it's, like, the fucking best. It's, it's so good. It's so fucking good. It's so good. Ah. Um, and, and the- <laughs> oh, also, Ozzy Mandius' cute cat. Yeah, Boobastis. Boobastis. Come, Boobastis. Marcus, I'm so glad you're sitting with us on this episode. <laughs> um, and just another, exa- I just wanted to throw out another example of like the crazy attention to detail and the crazy playfulness with form that went into this. Uh, there's a one issue that's called Dark Symmetry, I believe, and the whole thing, almost the look of the whole thing is almost like a palindrome. The way that they organized it, it kind of um, reads so that you go into the center and back out visually, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. So um, there's just they're just playing with form left and right. And um, oh yeah, and and the uh, that that ending and the twist you're kind of referring to was heavily influenced by an Outer Limits episode called The Architects of Fear, mm-hmm. which I would love to go back and check out. The way I read it is it was parallel thinking or like unintentional, but Alan Moore just copped up and just said. Oh, like in the script, it says, I guess it's like an episode of something from Outer Limits once someone point, because they were pushing him to change it yes. once the, the, the editor was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he was like, I don't think so, but whatever. Right. Um, there's actually, oh, we might get into it, but it's, it's, Alan Moore does not like being called a plagiarist. Yes. He <laughs> 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 takes it quite personally. Um, I mean, is there much more to say about The Watchmen? Uh, without going too deep into it, uh, even the motion comic didn't suck that much. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, it's true. Uh, 
I guess I can say that um, it was uh, the impetus for his falling out with DC Comics uh, mm-hmm. in the end. There was a big dispute about the rights. Some sources say they only got 2% of the profits of the Watchmen. They tried to, DC tried to, I think, sell some, like, I bet there were smiley face buttons. I think I is believe what, that was it. A and series and of uh, they, tried to, they tried to weasel their way out of giving them profits for that. And then they just had this giant falling out and DC retained the rights. And then they tried to pull some shit years later. I mean, it, it does seem like I know Alan Moore's like kind of a bonkers dude I could safely say but at the same time it really does sound like he got pretty shafted by DC and and years later they were like we'll give you the right back rights back if you write a prequel and and a sequel to the Watchmen which first of all I think all the what's funny to me is like all the marketing around the Watchmen all the all the toys and the buttons and it, it just sort of it feels like it just goes against everything that the Watchmen is really about. It's kind of funny to try to turn that into a hokey superhero franchise, you know? The story of Alan Moore is basically the story of a man who looked at the comic book landscape and said, oh, this is, a, this is all a bit all a bit rubbish, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> this is just uh, a holdover form of entertainment for 12-year-old boys that somehow still exists after the 1960s. <laughs> I'm going to tear it all down. And then after he tries to tear it all down, the fan response is like, yay, more comic books, more entertainment for nine-year-old boys. And it inspired a lot of work that he himself was kind of unhappy that he inspired. Uh, so really just uh, sort of... A, a man by the name of Grant Morrison comes uh, to mind yes. uh, with Alan Moore. He does... <laughs> Alan Moore does not enjoy my boy he Grant. just went on, like, one 15,000-word screed against him. That's it. The man goes and on just, hundreds of thousand-word screed. Yeah, hundreds of thousand, and just only manages to shoehorn it into any interview that he does. <laughs> just... Boy, both of them—they're just constantly at odds. It's, yeah. That's my favorite feud. It's, it's, like, it's these two—it's these two—it's literally two, two magicians, magicians fighting each other. Oh man, I, <laughs> I smell a future episode. Favorite feuds. They should just sit in the middle of a Scottish glen, high on LSD, trying to explode each other's heads, <laughs> scanner the style. They're the same person. <laughs> As they just—they just can't stand what they see in each other because it, it resonates so much. Yeah. It's probably what it is. No, Alan Moore's a gruff old man in his sixties. While, uh, you know, uh, Grant Morrison is a spry young man in his 50s. <laughs> it's a generational divide. Oh, boy. Yeah, that is, boy, that is just one of the most biting insults I've ever heard. It's Alan Moore calling Grant Morrison a Scottish cover band of his work. We covered oh that last God, episode. That is brutal. <laughs> that is legitimately brutal. We did cover that last episode, but we the did, burn but it, is so good. It bears uh, repeating. That oh burn is so good that it bears repeating. I felt the burn all over again. Yeah. <laughs> that uh, is rough. So, Watchmen came out and it like transformed the comic book industry because now people Here's the here's the thing though is that Alan Moore is like wouldn't it be like this is we've reached the outer limits of a superhero story like we've pun intended we, we yeah we've broken it down like we've tried to make them as human as possible and when you do that the tropes fall apart like superheroes fall apart when you give them that much drama and relationships and baggage and awareness but instead of kind of like learning from that lesson and being like oh yeah comics should like aspire to more 
all the publishers basically were like, okay, so Batman needs to fuck and like <laughs> Spider-Man hair, needs hair to. Yeah. And- yeah, they just, it brought about what many called the dark age of comics, mm. which then launched Image Comics and made everything extreme and everything was just jagged and raw. I mean, and to be fair, I mean, video games, everything Everything. went through this grunge music, you know, it all went through this kind of, it's kind of interesting how it all sort of pushed into the, I'm so glad we're not in the fucking like late 90s anymore. Like, I uh, mean, we got our own Margaret Thatcher coming, so (laughs) Margaret fucking Thatcher with her fucking fascist ass. (laughs) Yeah. Um, that definitely, that thought definitely has gone through my mind <laughs> in the last couple of weeks. Oh, I fought in Margaret Thatcher, yeah. fought in racist, xenophobic, <laughs> fought in hell, man. Um, so I guess we should mention before we move on from the DC uh, years, uh, The Killing Joke, which I know we mentioned in the last episode. Uh, Alan Moore repeatedly claims it's his, one of his least favorite works, which is which is kind of crazy to me. And and even you were talking about how you know it's better visually than it is. Is but I when I first read that thing, I mean I just absolutely loved it. I just thought it was just a wonderful little short. You know, <laughs> maybe I wasn't. Maybe it just uh, it was okay. I was okay with it for what it was. Mm-hmm. You know, which was just like a lovely short piece about Batman and exploring the sort of basic nature of the relationship between Joker and the Batman. But yeah. Alan Moore kind of talked shit about it. He said, yeah, it was something that I thought was clumsy, misjudged, and had no real human importance. It was just a couple... It was just about a couple of licensed DC characters that didn't really relate to the real world in any way. And also, he regrets crippling Barbara Gordon. He said, I spoke to Lynn Wine, who was our editor on the project. He said, yeah, okay, cripple the bitch. (laughs) It was probably one of the areas where they should have reined me in, but they didn't. Uh, in uh, In the animated movie release that happened just this year... Uh, they not only crippled the bitch, they made they were like, fuck it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They added that to the story. It was just like, oh, by the way, Batman and the teenage daughter of his best friend boned on rooftops in costume. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is such like a like the, that's the thing, is that whole story, like, yeah, okay, it's cool to see Batman be that like raw and twisted, but like do we need Batman to be raw and twisted? Right. Doesn't he live by a law? Isn't mm. it that and that and that the kind of the, the but important? But fuck, the art is so good. Brian Boland's art is so good. Wonderful. I it's a it beautiful. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I also wanted to mention that Boland was inspired by the German expressionist Paul Linney's film *The Man Who Laughs*, which I'm very interested to go back and watch if that was his visual. This uh, marks. Inspiration. Uh, this also marks another time that Alan Moore had a runaway hit. That he saw very little, like, actual financial benefit from. Really? And this was during a time when uh, comic book artists across the industry were kind of raising a ruckus for more rights, for more creators' rights. Mm. Um, that ultimately kind of manifested in Image Comics, uh, which was uh, just all the top-tier talents at Marvel at the time. Rob yep. Liefeld, Jim Lee. uh, uh <sighs> Wilt Todd McFarlane. McFarlane. I was going to say Wilt Portasios. (laughs) Several people have been requesting Image Spawn, specifically Spawn and Todd McFarlane episodes, so we'll be doing all three soon, Jim. Yeah. And there's also uh, Eric Larson that did Savage Dragon. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I I loved Savage Savage Dragon. Dragon. Mark Silvestri uh, was also part of that crew. Uh, and Jim uh, Valentino among and so from that just cr- ripped yeah. green <laughs> muscles. That dragon was huge <laughs> and bedrock. Oh, okay. 
<laughs> no, uh, Bedrock, I think you mean Badrock. Badrock. Bad uh-huh. He was originally called Bedrock in Youngblood number one, but then Hanna-Barbera sued them, oh, and so he had to, to change rock. it to Badrock. I think I have that Youngblood. Mm-hmm. Either way. And like the character. It, it, I think it has to be worth at least $6,000 by now. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. No. No, totally yeah. Not. No, because no. I got all those comics. I was like, I'm going to be a millionaire. My brother was like, you got to get all these comic books. I was like, I got them all. I got the first Savage Dragon. I've got the first Spawn. I've got I all. have the entire run of Exo Manowar <laughs> and an underground bunker protected by armed guards. And believe me, I am several hundred thousand dollars in debt. I have the classic <laughs> crossover episode or issue with Savage Dragon and. And Bad Rock. <laughs> That's a killer one right yeah, there. Right now, you can get Youngblood, number one, mint condition. For? $3.61. We're in the money. We're in the money. We got a lot, a lot of that. Da, 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 <laughs> um, so, so Alan Moore was, even though he had sworn off uh, DC Comics, he was he collaborated with a lot of these individual creators, especially because they offered actual rights to the characters they created. Right, right. But of course, um, before he goes to Image, oh shit, I jumped the gun. Big period of time there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Alan Moore, his wife Phyllis, and his mutual lover Deborah Delano. Is the Deborah Delano is just the official name of the third wheel in a polyamorous Double D's, baby. Set up, they set up their own comics publishing company called Mad Love. Um, and they did an anthology of work speaking out about Thatcher. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it particularly and it her, did a lot of good. Yeah. It did a bunch of good. Her clause twenty eight preventing councils and schools from promoting homosexuality. <laughs> uh, but also some big big things came out of this. Um, they, there was also Taboo, a comics anthology, um, which featured work by artists uh, such as Neil Gaiman, and it's also where we found our first little snippets of what would become From Hell and The Lost Girls, both. Um, oh, and also, I really want to mention this because I'm very, I, I want to get other people to read it because I want to go out to the store and read it myself. Have you guys heard of A Small Killing? No. It was yeah, a, I've heard of it. It was a, a, a short, a kind of a short story in comic book form he made about a once idealistic advertising executive haunted by his boyhood self. It looks really interesting. I looked at some of the kind of individual like pages from it, and some some say it's his most underrated work. It looks really chilling. My it buddy looks, Jason, who's like an Alan Moore freak, constantly talks about. Yeah, it. he says I gotta that read it. he says that it's just fantastic. I gotta read yeah. it. Um, so let's talk about From Hell. I I think it may compete with the Watchmen for me personally as my favorite Alan Moore masterwork. I, I really think it is absolutely brilliant. I did have the opportunity to read it in London. Uh, we used the map in the back of the uh, of our of my graphic novel to go around and 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 check out all the different like murder scenes. That's a dangerous Someone... part of town still, so I wouldn't recommend doing that, <laughs> no, especially at night. I, I was only there a couple of weeks ago. It was fine. <laughs> I got no, some curry. Yeah, no, man. Brick, Brick Lane. Around, I right? went to Brick Lane, yeah. Brick Lane. Yeah, Walk yeah. around Whitechapel with a murder boner and just see what happens. Yeah, there was there was a one-legged homeless man who uh, was hobbling after me, yelling at me to give him some chain to buy him a tea. Mm. He's like, buy me a cup of tea! I buy me a cup of tea! I'm from the past! I'm from the 1800s! It's um, adorable that, that you actually... True, that is a true story. <laughs> that did actually happen. That's amazing. It's adorable One like a that British you, homeless man. That, 
sure. And that wasn't a Masonic agent meant to do psyops against you. <laughs> sure. So um, some, some things to know about From Hell. It was about 10 years in the making. It was based on Stephen Knight's theory that the uh, Jack the Ripper murders were part of a conspiracy to conceal the birth of an illegitimate royal baby fathered by Prince Albert Victor, Duke of Clarence. It's deep. The amount of notes... And what's great, too, is you can see the amount of notes because in the back of the book, it features over 40 pages of page-by-page notes and references and just different things. I remember there were I – was, I was living at the time near the British Library, and in the back there were certain books that he used for his research that could only be found in the British Library. I mean, it was just a very intense, in-depth and, – and it was a mixture. It definitely wasn't like, this is fact. It was, it was, a, it was a sort of – half fiction half historic half my conspiracy theory retelling of who uh jack the ripper could have been and um it's also really uh fascinating like uh it's he said it was inspired in part by the uh, uh one of douglas adams novels entitled Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency, in that it explores the notion that to solve a crime historically, one would need to solve, uh, solve the entire society in which it occurred. And, and, and the Jack the Ripper murders involved lots of different people. Aleister Crowley makes an appearance, Winston Churchill. You've just got all these bizarre connections to famous authors and painters, and all these people are bizarrely connected and tied to this fucked up happening that happened in London during that time. And um, it's just kind of like completely mind blowing. Um, I mean, it's it's. Uh, I mean, he's like hemmed and hawed on whether or not his version of the events are the actual events. But it was more an exploration of this grim event that kind of, in his mind, ushered in the modern mindset, which is why all these he brings in all these thinkers and all these beliefs and all these ideas. I mean, by the end of the book, it becomes like this weird mystical tableau of like ancient gods and philosophical ideas. It's, it's way less about who stabbed what in the where, but it it almost more about the people searching that out, trying to find, trying to uncover all these things and trying to piece all these different scraps together to try to find the truth. Somehow it's got a deeper meaning almost to seeking truth um, than almost anything else. He referred to the people who were trying to solve the crime as, I, I believe they were the goal catchers, like seagull catchers, and, and he kept depicting them as these men with big nets, <laughs> swinging these big nets around in the wind, just trying to pick up any little thing they could and, and, and put it all together. And it's just this wonderful, infinite mystery who, who this murderer was and if, if it even was one person. And, you know, it's got a lot of, I think you can make a lot of connections to the Zodiac Killer and people's obsession with that uh, serial killer in a lot of ways, especially with like the amount of different letters that were involved. Of course, the title From Hell is uh, based on the opening of the From Hell letter, which they do believe was written by the actual killer. It's the only one that they can actually prove is written by the killer. And it has all these bizarre weird things going on with it. It's almost a code within itself. It's got these weird misspellings that people think were done on purpose. It's just got little things like that, kind of like the Zodiac did, that just is purposefully like throwing off, um, trying to throw off everybody at every every different uh, uh, angle and pass. Also, it was a occultist attempt to stave off the female takeover of the world. Yes, of course. Always is. 
<laughs> but uh, we know that we talked about that at our secret you see meeting the Johnny yesterday, Depp movie? and we'll talk about that at our secret meeting tomorrow night. Oh God, the fucking Johnny Depp movie! Please help me. That's the funny thing is like looking at all the movies. I mean, we're going to talk about League of Extraordinary Gentlemen soon. Ooh. I mean, it is just such a trap. If I were Alan Moore, I too would be like, yeah, fuck Hollywood. No one's making movies out of this stuff. <laughs> and I would make the case too that he's very much like when people talk about, you know, there's no way to adapt catcher in the rye to uh, a film and it shouldn't be done and i think that's true with alan moore's work i mean it's just uh, it's a purely i think that's the mark of a great artist too that that you really can't adapt it it's just he's so connected to the form that you just can't you can't just package it in a different way that easily you know i mean it's it's, i'm gonna butcher the quote of his but he famously will repeat this that if comics uh highest ideal is to just be turned into a movie, then comics will never be anything worthy. They'll just be movies that don't move. Yeah, they're just, uh, 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 what do you call it when the person... Storyboard. Thank you. God damn it. (laughs) I'm like, I know this word. It's a word I know. Me make movies. Me make many movies. You make many movies? Me make four movies. Me make four to five movies. All right. uh, You got a lot of spunk, kid. I'll buy that picture. (laughs) And I mean, just case in point with From Hell, the illustrations are its so connected to the material. It's this scrappy kind of pencil uh, drawing sort of on paper. It, it just really, oh, man, it, it, it just makes the world. The, the the illustration style and approach. Um, not I forget who the illustrator is offhand. I don't have it written down, but it's just so perfect for what that story is for filthy old London. It just has that look. It's just like pencil scribblings. Eddie Campbell. Eddie Campbell. Man, it's so well done. So and he anyways. worked. He's worked with Eddie Campbell on a lot of like smaller projects. Yeah. throughout the years too. Yeah. It just it just is perfect like, for that story. His weirder shit that no one read. Right. Like, just like we're like, what was it called? Like he did a snake thing with Eddie Campbell, I know. Well, speaking <laughs> of weird shit that nobody read, uh, The Lost Girls. No. <laughs> uh, I own it, and uh, it actually, it was it was $75, and it actually sold out like a like day up. It yeah. made it made waves. It was like a big deal. People were covering this as like a like weird, ribald, like, it, I feel like uh, that was like back in a day where a particularly sexy book still made headlines in America. Right. right. <laughs> well, it, he wanted to sort of give a deeper weight and a deeper sort of meaning to uh, the form of pornography. Um, it, it was set in 1913. We've got uh, all all the gals are there. Alice from Alice in Wonderland, Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz, and Wendy from Peter Pan. But he sort of repurposes those stories, such as with Dorothy, the uh, tornado comes through her town, and she's, so she's holed up in her house, and she ends up master just rubbing and rubbing and rubbing on it. All right. And then she has this crazy O. And uh-huh. sees all this crazy stuff and then has sex with a bunch of farmhands that, like, are representative of the Tin Man and the yada, yada, yada. You've got Wendy meets a homeless boy named Peter Pan. He shows her how to be how to bone zone. Mm-hmm. And then they go to the park with a bunch of other fun boys. Mm-hmm. And then they sort of keep doing fun Ca- stuff. Pawing at her. Pawing and blood. And then a crocodile <laughs> eats one of them. Yeah, yeah, a crocodile eats one of them. But there's also some really heavy shit going on in there. I mean, there's a lot of rape. There's a lot of... Um, 
just very deep sort of the molestation and they definitely deal with all all types of different sex stop and- stop you're getting me so hot <laughs> <laughs> there's such a sexy book it was such a weird book to read i mean at that point i was like alan moore number one mm-hmm. i will get anything he, he makes even if it's a 75 dollar giant like hardback fairy tale book filled with like pussies with like a, a, a opium smoking caterpillar on them and stuff like that we're doing we're going there right i'm gonna go where he goes i will follow him the song i listen to that every time i would read the lost girls so uh but that yeah it's a weird masturbation ritual i'm not gonna lie <laughs> um illustrated with his lover melinda gabby um you definitely get a sense that it was sort of made by two people who were just banging <laughs> like hounds and um it was a weird book to read because i was bizarrely turned on and then also kind of like icked, icked out and then also like it was written really well and they used his history like the assassination of franz ferdinand happens while they're at this hotel in paris <laughs> and weird shit like that that they tie in again taking Historic formats, this time it is sort of fairy tale ladies. It is like girls from sort of different works of literature and fiction and stuff like that um, mixed with these historical things and then just also hardcore bone zoning. So now would you recommend this as either literature or pornography? I would say that I would like to read it again. That is what I'm I I'm looking say. at some pictures online. I'm it's saying intense. pornography looks pretty good. It's good. <laughs> it's good. I, I would like to read it again. I I, uh, I don't know if I actually finished it, which is kind of messed up because I paid all that money for it. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's a really interesting experiment. I think it's worthy. I think it's art. I definitely think it's art. Um, you know, I think it's it's courageous and interesting to check that out. And at the same time, it, 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 it does beg the question um, you know, can you make art out of pornography? And and um, yes, yeah, I guess so. There is virulent from you looking at the pictures. There is no <laughs> such thing as an ironic boner. I will. Say, I feel like the two are inexorably separated. And people were, especially because the the you know, it's dealing with. I laughed. I came. <laughs> <laughs> it's dealing with like young girls going through having a lot of sexual experiences. There definitely was some outcry, and some people wanted to ban it and stuff like that. But for the most part it was fine it sold like crazy you know it it you know it did pretty very well and uh, Moore says the reason for that is that he said if we had come out and said well this is a work of art they would have probably all said no it's not it's pornography so because we're saying this is pornography they're saying no it's not it's art yeah. and people don't uh, realize quite what they've said so I, yeah. I I love that statement I think that is such a brilliant brilliant thing to say you know say like no no this is just uh, dirty you know stuff and then everybody rallies in the opposite way Ma- mainstream media <laughs> lamestream <laughs> I, I mean i just you know i just wish alan moore's vision that we can enter a world where just grown adults can just openly read pornographic comic books out in public transportation like Tokyo. <laughs> Actually, a friend of mine accidentally did that. She bought Lost she bought Lost Girls like the day it came out. Like we were working at uh Midtown Comics together. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. And she bought it <coughs> and she was a huge <coughs> Alan Moore fan. So she got on the train 
And, you know, it's like three volumes. Yes. And she pulled it out and started reading it, but it was, you know, late at night, so no one was sitting next to her. Uh, but she didn't look at the back cover uh, yeah. of, the yeah. bo- of the volumes, and all three they volumes all have. have just, like, hardcore fucking <laughs> like, right. all over. And she thought, yeah. like, why? Like She was like, why is that woman and her child looking at me so oh, weird while no. I'm reading this? Uh, and then when she got home, she mm-hmm. took, took it out. It's like... Oh, I'm terrible. <laughs> Thanks a lot, lady. Now I got to explain what vulvas are to my <laughs> Um. So uh, after that, uh, as one does when they write a pornographic comic book series, uh, Alan Moore de- declared himself a ceremonial magician. and uh, <laughs> He claimed it was a drunken boast on his 40th birthday. <laughs> <laughs> and moved back to mainstream comics via Image Comics. Um. So, yeah, on becoming a ceremonial magician, it was actually inspired by From Hell. Um, he said he's, there was one word balloon in From Hell completely that completely hijacked my life. Uh, this is in his words. Uh, a character says something like, the one place gods inarguably exist is in the human mind. After I wrote that, I realized I'd accidentally made a true statement. And now I'd have to rearrange my entire life around it. I love how he inspires himself, himself yeah. because no one else can inspire him. <laughs> I was uh, listening to an interview where he uh, quoted the uh, historical figure John D who was this uh, mathematician and astrologer and scientist in Queen Elizabeth? He was a magician. He was a magician. He was a magician. But this was during the those like heady days. He was a magician. <laughs> it was when sorcerer and scientist weren't separate jobs yet. <laughs> um, and so he admired this guy so much that he thought to himself, "Well, if he can believe in magic and he is a genius who shaped history, then you know there might be something to this." And he then describes a series of experiences with LSD where he just met demons. And the more he immersed himself in it, uh, the more he got, uh, he truly believed it. And listening to him talk about it, it reminds me a lot of uh, what you've done, Marcus, on last podcast on the left. Uh, and just the idea, he'll just get into these zones where it's it's really fascinating to listen to a dog just be like, the world of the imagination is real to the conscious mind, just as real as anything real can be. And words are the vessel through which the imagination enters the real world. And when you think of a sorcerer, he uses spells. And a spell is how you form words. You spell it out. Therefore, words have power. Words can change the outside world. <laughs> he said, I believe that Magic is art, and that art, whether that be music, writing, sculpture, or any other form, is literally magic. Art is, like magic, the science of manipulating symbols, words, or images to achieve changes in consciousness. Marcus, is that correct? You can call anything magic. And he said that, <laughs> well, you know what? It's still, it's, I think it works. It does. The new burrito at Burger King is literally yeah. magic. It's a Whopper Burger King <laughs> magic, Marcus, that we're saying right now. Unbelievable. Uh, yeah, yeah. that's what you do. Yeah, that's, well, that's what you do, you know? You're like, you you, you you make your uh, perception into your reality. <laughs> and he's absolutely doing it. And on the LSD thing, too, I thought was, I have a funny quote for that. It, yeah, it said, in some of his early magical r- rituals, he's used mind altering psychedelic drugs. He said, he, in his words, it's frightening. You call out the names in this strange, incomprehensible language, and you're looking into the glass, and there appears to be this little man talking to you. It just works. <laughs> <laughs> and of course his uh 
primary deity is the ancient Roman snake god Glycon. So, yeah. you know, he's been doing a lot of work. He's been really digging in there. There's yeah. a sock in there, too, I think. Is there a bit of a sock situation? Yeah. yeah. Mm, uh, it's, he also throws in a lot of Kabbalah. There's, like, a lot yes. of Kabbalah stuff, which, like, is... So weird and bad. <laughs> and Aleister Crowley. Um, yeah. He uh, uh, accepted the ideas from Crowley's religion, Th- Thelema. Can you speak towards this Thelema, a little bit? Thelema, yeah. Thelema about true will being connected to the will of the pantheistic universe. Yeah. I mean, that's... Uh, wait a second. What does he say about it again? Uh, it says... He accepted ideas from Crowley's religion, Thelema, mm-hmm. about true will being connected to the will of the pantheistic universe. Yeah, I guess what he's talking about there is that if you have, if you use your own will, you can manifest certain deities, like certain deities uh, throughout. Like you can choose pretty much any deity. That you, like say you can choose Set, like the uh, Egyptian god Set. You can bring in Set's energy, use it for your own purposes, and. And, uh, use the force of will to get pretty much whatever you want. Oh yeah, that yeah. I mean, another big thing you got to know about Alan Moore, dude hates monotheists. Yeah, uh, oh yes. yeah, he's really fucking just the ooh. mono anything. Having yeah. sex with one woman, <laughs> being in one religion, staying Fascists, with one publisher, Hollywood producers, and monotheists <laughs> form the dark triangle <laughs> that has haunted Alan Moore's life his entire life. <laughs> Um, so, uh, around 2000, or what, no, 1993, uh, Moore decided to go back into comic books with Image, which we kind of touched on a little while, uh, while earlier. He did an issue of Spawn. He, uh, did another, uh, little piece called 1963, um, uh, which was an homage to the Silver Age of American comics. Which have you ever not good that out? Mm, not good. No, and it's a, it's media. It's a really mediocre. This is when he kind of hit a weird wall, and and he he even he said that after I'd done the 1963 stuff, I'd become aware of how much the comic audience had changed while I'd been away. That all of a sudden it seemed that the bulk of the audience really wanted things that had almost no story. Just lots of big full-page pin-up sort of pieces of artwork, um, and I was genuinely interested to see if I could write a decent story in that market. Now, you guys remember that time. I think that's the time when I was sort of getting into comic books, and it was sort of about choosing a book by its cover back then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I would just pick up whatever hologram foil cover, crazy ass hologram X Men covers and stuff like that. Well, the big thing that he did then was he did a, a three issue mini series featuring the Violator character from yeah, Spawn. I and love it, man. I <laughs> when I mean, if if his goal was to like make thirteen year olds go fucking awesome, <laughs> then he did it because I think it was. because it was because it was cool because the whole plot was uh, Violator. Uh, like five brothers from, you know, the seventh circle of hell have decided that it's time for Violator to die. And so it's just, you know, these like big gigantic demons just wrecking ass all throughout Earth, killing people and getting all weird with it while trying to find Violator uh, and Violator getting all weird with it and like opening up people's skin and like hiding inside other people's bodies and making like really stupid just, I mean, that's the How thing. How many Alan fat Moore, clowns? Huh? How many fat clowns are in this series? I mean, well, the main per the, character the is a clown. fat clown. Oh, good. The fat clown, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I went back and read it uh, and uh, not too long ago. It was like in college when I went back and read it. Like, this 
is terrible. Yeah, like, yeah. It's it's really. It's definitely the. I mean, it's fucking. I mean, it is atrociously bad. Because this is the darkest Alan period Moore in his creative is not that funny. Yeah, right? right. He cannot write a joke to save his life. And a lot of that stuff was hinged on a dark humor. Yeah, and that's especially what, the violet. And I think that's what he was trying to do. Is like the because you're really, telling me the lead singer of the Sinister Ducks had a <laughs> shitty sense of humor. <laughs> Check like out the, last episode for some clips of the Sinister Ducks. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the art is rad as fuck, you know, in like the full-on 90s term. Like, it's really violent. Uh, it's really gruesome and bloody. Uh, but the, the 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 writing is, like, I mean, just atrociously bad. It's like he tried writing so, bad dialogue. I wonder if that could have been the reason why image partner Jim Lee went to more and said, all right, I'm going to give you your own imprint with America's best comics and maybe try to sort of force him to get back to his roots, get back to what he was great at. Uh, yeah, actually, I mean, it is amazing that this period of time where he's trying to appeal to the modern aesthetics uh, kind of gave birth to this new wave of Alan Moore comics where it's very much about throwback. Yes, with, of course, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which, man, don't let the movie keep you from enjoying uh, uh, getting into that comic book series. It is one of my, f- oh my God. That, that's the crazy thing. Whoa, He's whoa, made whoa. So many the g- League of Extraordinary Gentlemen movie is fantastic if you are actively high on speed <laughs> and doing something else. Oh my God. He just, it's, the comic book is just this perfect sort of mishmash of all these different characters from specifically British literature, Victorian right? British heroes, uh, Alan Quartermain, The Invisible Man, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, uh, Mina Harkin from Dracula. Yep. Uh, they throw these, like, uh, by that time- in Captain hi- Nemo. Captain, Captain Nemo. Nemo. By this time in history, uh, Sherlock Holmes was dead, but he casts a large shadow over the proceedings. They fight- uh, War of the Worlds. They Yeah, there's, like, War of the Worlds, Fu Manchu, and- uh, Kevin O'Neill, I believe, is the artist's name, mm, imbues it so with this good. very unique energy. So uh, great. There's all this flavored text of Victorian-era advertisements. It's it's really good and really entertaining. Um, I got to, as far as the black dossier and things got a little wiggly-woggly. Mm-hmm. But specifically those first, first the, two trades yeah. Yeah. are, um, like, immaculate. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's violent and funny and you learn something like it'll send you into a deep Wikipedia hole because every yep. incidental named character is from somewhere. Again, like Watchmen in the sense that it's just filled with tiny little details, tiny little references to, to other things. Did you guys read Tom Strong? A couple of issues. A few issues. It was the weakest one out of them all. Postmodern superhero series featured a hero inspired by characters predating Superman, such as Doc Savage and Tarzan. It yep. was it was. Yeah, it was science. Fine. Heroes, Buck Rogers. There, there was this whole like Ubermenschian like archetype. So it's, it's like, like an adventure comic. It's like League, and that's in a sense that it mishmashed different. Kind of, sorta. Huh. I mean, it, high, yeah. high adventure, kind of fantastical science heroes. Uh, more it's, like pulp magazines. Yeah, that's yeah, that's, that's absolutely. A, yeah, it's it, literally. Yeah, yeah, it's just pulp magazines. And I know we, but we, like jungle adventure pulp right, magazines. Right, right. Yeah. And then I know I, I mentioned earlier how much like I it excites me when people say, "Hey, the podcast got me to pick something up." And I think if this. 
podcast gets anyone to pick anything up, I would hope it would be top 10. Oh, I yeah. love, love, love top 10. It's Holden, so fill time. Good. I have to change my pants for <laughs> a specific reason. <laughs> Whatever you do, don't mention the name of that comic book again. <laughs> In a world that uh, exists where everyone is a superhero, um, all the cops and villains and everybody has a secret identity and all this sort of thing. Tights, costume, and, and, and you're like wondering like how does that even exist as a society they just start with that premise and just evolve it yeah everyone from the hot dog vendor in like spandex heating up hot dogs with his heat vision on the street to uh just like every criminal and employee there's uh god the illustrations are wild yeah like- ha and xander cannon in amazingly detailed artwork uh oh i'm sorry but so in a, in a city where everybody, literally everybody, is a costume superhero, we follow the 10th Precinct. Yes. The sort of the guys trying to kind of hold it all together as they deal with sort of mysteries happening. It's a cop drama. Yeah. It's a cop drama, and the head sergeant is a dog. Named Hyper Dog. A talking dog named Hyper Dog in a metal man suit. I love it. <laughs> and, and he's like the best character. He's awesome. There's so many good characters. And so many good characters. Definitely influenced by uh, TV shows. Uh, specifically, he, he cited Hill Street Blues mm-hmm. as an influence for this comic book. Um, it's just such, just awesome, sto- like detective stories. It's just fucking so well done. Yeah, really great murder story. Really great murder mystery. In this incredibly detailed and realized future world. Yeah, but it's not just like murder mysteries either. Like there's a, one of the most heartbreaking ones is uh, there's a teleportation accident. Oh, issue eight. Yeah, it's, issue it, eight. Yeah. Th- many people list this as one of the single greatest issues of comics ever. I would, yeah, I'd, I'd be uh, up there with that. Yeah. The uh, creator of uh, True Detective. Uh, really? If you rewatch the last episode of True Detective, Russ Goes into an entire tirade about light and darkness. Yeah. That is basically word for word from top 10 number eight. Oh, oh shit. Wow. The light and the dark. Yeah. Before there was darkness, we're winning. Like, that's, that's so it's awesome. fucking from that book. Oh, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> I knew. Yeah! I knew when I heard that. I loved it when I said, but I was like, I think I've heard something like that before. New I've been trying to place crew. that for two years. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to place that for two years where that's from. It's from the dying horse. <laughs> Don't let the words dying horse sway you. That's, it's a very important. It's from the gigantic dying horse man. Space horse. The gigantic space horse man. It's so that's like who that. it's from. It's such It's a- just so much insane, ridiculous shit. Giving so many like so many deeper meanings and truths to you. Yeah, that you're just like, how are you capable of this level of storytelling? Yeah. Well, in there's this- a there's a teleportation incident mm-hmm. that is completely and totally senseless, and one of these cops that is essentially like a beat cop has to go and talk to a guy as he's dying. Like he's caught in between this, like he's caught in a teleportation, like space game between space horses. Mm -hmm. And this guy is, you know, he's dying slowly and the cop has to go and like pretty much hold his hand as he's dying. Which is if you're if you're a cop, car accidents are a huge part of your your job detail that people don't really, you know, it doesn't make its way into pop culture a lot. Yeah. You Um, end up being with people during their last moments of quite a bit. 
Um, and the world of top 10 has like all these different like subtleties to it. Like science based superheroes have like higher status there while robot robotics based heroes and magic based heroes are treated as like second class citizens. Uh, there's all these, uh, intertwining cases. Like you follow this, you know, this group of detectives and like they'll be following one case and then passing off the workload to another one and the way they intertwine kind of mix and match in various ways the art is gorgeous it's it's just it's 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 up there with watchmen with v for vendetta absolutely it should stand as a separate pillar of Alan Moore's creative prowess. And yeah. it's just like two trades. I didn't read... Uh, the, the 49ers? Yeah. The it's 40, really good. It, I didn't read 49ers. I didn't read uh, Spank? Smacks. Smacks. Smacks okay. is the name of the... Smacks is okay, okay. Uh, but it, it's disappointing. Yeah. Uh, but a lot of incest. <laughs> a lot of incest, and it's like a, more of a fantasy story than okay. anything. Uh, and so I was kind of like, why are you doing this instead of writing more top 10? Right, like, right. This seems like... Uh, this is. It was just... Ex- it was extremely self-indulgent. So just pick up those two trades just the f- and and if you and like 49ers. those two trades go if you like the two trades by 49ers which is a like a prequel, it's a prequel yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah 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 gotcha um but it's yeah but top 10 is fucking phenomenal so good. phenomenal now i never read promethea but that's his sort of cult comic book it's He's, also very good he wanted um, to sort of you know, he said, I wanted to be able to do an occult comic that didn't portray the occult as a dark and scary place because that's not my experience of it. So Prometheus was this sort of psychedelic, sophisticated, Ama- Again, paired with an amazing artist in J.H. Williams III, mm-hmm. who ended up working on the uh, Batwoman Detective Comics runs. Uh, very intricate page designs and, you know, heretofore unseen panel layouts and... Of course, lots and lots of dialogue balloons where just one character explains some ancient bullshit. <laughs> a lot. So uh, uh, that that pretty much wraps up, uh, really uh, kind of brings us up to today since 2009. He, he left um, around 05, 06 or so. He left the comics industry, uh, uh, the mainstream comics industry. In 09, he became a panelist on the BBC, BBC Radio 4 program, The Infinite Monkey Cage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he started an underground magazine in 2010 called uh, Dodgum Logic, uh, which is uh, features work by Northampton-based authors and artists. I thought it was a really beautiful full circle for him. Oh, he's still obsessed with, uh, with Northampton. It's been... Uh- the novel Jerusalem, which uh, I don't know if we talked about last time. No. It came out this year. It is a war and peace level, huge tome. Yeah, my uh, roommate just got it. He actually just showed it to me yesterday. It's a beautiful printing, wow. but it is huge. Yeah. It follows the city of Northampton from ancient times to the modern day with uh, kind of Joycean, like weird chapter jumps from character to character. That's awesome. Entire chapters he'll just write in verse instead of prose. Uh, it apparently like took him ten years, and he would find himself intellectually broken and having to put it down and then bring it back again. Huh. Um, man, so crazy. I, I mean, I just the fact that I haven't even barely touched the surface of some of that stuff. Just also, he hates mind. computers and thinks the government <laughs> is bad. <laughs> uh, and 2011, he he uh, did his last issue of Neonomicon, which is his Lovecraft uh, universe stuff. Um, and in 2016, more confirmed, he's authoring a final League book, uh, League of Legends, and uh, or League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, League of Legends, uh, and <laughs> one more uh, Lovecraft work before retiring from comics to enter filmmaking? Yeah, he already has some shorts made. He's very excited about that. Wow. I haven't watched them. I couldn't find them online. 
but yeah, he's still like a gadabout. He's still like he's working on an occult textbook also called the Moon and Serpent Bumper Book of Magic. That sounds great. Yeah, I'm just, I'll buy go. that. So uh, I I think there you have it, Jake. That's uh, the life and times of Mr. Alan Moore up to date. Fucking cool dude, man. He's yeah. just a goddamn cool dude that makes cool things. Uh, I, I, I he's been in my headspace now. I'm gonna. I, I'm really tempted to pick up Jerusalem if it weren't for the fact that I now have to read a bunch of more shit ever since we started this goddamn research based <laughs> podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome. Oh boy, more learning, I yell every day as I wake up. Yeah, welcome to the life. <laughs> um, man, yeah, I want to go back and reread Watchmen, reread Top Ten. So, uh, uh, yeah, I hope I hope everybody who listens to this does the same. I hope that gets you to, to get out there and get your reading pants on and don't shit in them for once I ruined life. my <laughs> reading pants earlier this podcast. <laughs> um, so anyways, this has been The Wizard and the Bruiser. Please write and review uh, or, or rate and review on iTunes. Um, uh, we're on these streets. I'm uh, My PlayStation Network tag is Catcher6945 if you want to play some Overwatch. Uh, I'm picking up Pokemon Sun mm. real soon here. And uh, what else? Uh, I'm on Twitch.tv uh, under Holdnators Jake. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Best Jake Young. And if you go onto the uh, Dorkly YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Dorkly, you can find me playing Dungeons and Dragons with uh, audience suggestions. So I, uh, my wi- my wizard Chris Sandwich fought hand in hand with the barbarian warrior Johnny Foreskin. Uh, <laughs> turned out it was a real good adventure. And uh, you can see the uh, character Jared that I've been working on for Dorkly in his first solo video where I yell about anime for four minutes. <laughs> Fantastic. Good night. And good luck. What? (laughs) (laughs) For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to cavecomedyradio.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, We've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.